This week we'll talk about uh, career coaching and we have a special guest today, Lindsay. Lindsay works at the Spiced Academy in Berlin where she helps bootcamp students get hired. So I think your title is Senior Career Coach, right? Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah, so welcome. Welcome to our event. Thank you, Alexei. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Before we go into our main topic of career coaching, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah, sure. I studied engineering. So uh, my father was an engineer and he very much was my role model. So I was really influenced by him. And then I went into management consultancy. So I worked there for 10 years. Uh, towards the end, yeah, it, there was something missing. So I left and actually I went to live in Italy for two years with my boyfriend at the time, who, yeah, now my husband. So this was a huge disruptor, I would say, and a significant thing that influenced my career. So and I went to live in the Dolomites. So I was on the top. I'd gone from London to the top of a mountain. And I think really what happened there was I had two years where I was able to sort of break away from the social pressures that we tend to have that influence our choices for careers. So we kind of think that we're independent thinkers and that we just make up our own minds, but often the networks that we're part of, or maybe our families have a big influence in us. And yeah, being there, I think that's what I let go of. So I felt very free to make choices about what I did next, but I had no idea what it would be just Really, by the end of that time in Italy, I knew what it wouldn't be. You know, I had a big, long list of things I didn't want to do. So I returned to London at this point, and then I found a coach. And this was another significant point for me. So this was the first time that I saw something different. You know, I'd come from this really quite analytical background. And here I was talking about psychology. And yeah, it was new to me. And it was really interesting to me. And this is another thing that affects our career. So this was quite random, you know, so we tend to think that somehow we can plan out our career and we have this 10 point plan and we can sort of reflect and think it all, all out. But, you know, how could I ever have predicted this? I couldn't. So this was the first thing that was random. But the other thing is when we're trying to work out what we want to do is we often can't think our way out of it. We need to have a new experience and like get new data actually that we can reflect on. So this is what happened to me. I bumped into something that I liked the look of. And also I reflected and realized, yeah, I was more interested in, in people and actually psychology than I had first thought. Um, after this, I became the head of careers at a business school in London. This was challenging because I had never done this before and I had a team and I was supposed to know what I was doing. So this was challenging, but I found my place really. I realized that education was something I liked because it was worthwhile. This had been what was missing in consulting for me. Yeah, I did a few other things in Berlin, but now, as you said, I'm doing something similar. I'm in a career role in helping people who want to transfer into tech, either as data scientists or full stack developers. Yeah, interesting. So can you tell us a few words about the school, the Spiced Academy? What do you do there? Yeah, so we have a full stack program. So it's three months long and people come from all different backgrounds, really, truly from, you know, we have musicians, artists, some people who've maybe come from a more quantitative background and they're learning predominantly JavaScript. And then they're going on to be either front end or back end developers. And then we have a data science program. So there we are teaching predominantly Python and how to build machine learning models, SQL. And um, again, it's people are transitioning often into data science, but also analytics, sometimes into consulting uh, roles, or sometimes just going back to the job they did before, but they need the data skills. Yeah, I think the, the school is quite prolific because now if you take any company in Berlin, they probably have a graduate working there or that this school exists. So you're yeah. doing quite a good job. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> so before this conversation, I wanted to do some research to prepare to know what kind of questions I can ask you. And I found an article about career coaching. Mm -hmm. And that article was saying that a career coach helps with CV review, project and portfolio review, job search uh, tips, interview preparation, giving advice about career switching, uh, negotiating a better offer. 
And this seemed like a very long list to me. <laughs> like, first of all, I wanted to ask you is, uh, do you think this is an accurate and complete list? And do you agree with this list or, or not? Yeah, for the most part, I would say this is quite accurate. There's some things actually I would add to it and maybe one thing I would take away. So the thing I would take away would be when they say portfolio review, this isn't something that I would do. I would not be looking at their GitHub and making comment on this. Although there would be some uh, self-study where they could understand what a good uh, GitHub would look like. This is not something you do. This is something somebody else in the bootcamp is doing, right? Yeah, this would be, a, you know, one of the teachers would be helping with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But everything else on there I would agree with. I think the thing maybe that's missing for me is, yeah, one thing I find is that people often are quite negative. When people are changing their career, they can be quite dismissive and quite negative about what they've done so far in their career. You know, So they tend to actually need help to really extract out what their previous achievements have been. And I think this is partly this legacy where we feel like we should start on a career and have this sort of linear path, which definitely is no longer the case. And so they can really need help reframing their past, I would say, in a way which is, A, helps them sell themselves in their new career, but more importantly, just makes them feel better. Mm-hmm. And genuinely, they don't have an objective view of what they've achieved. Like, for example, maybe someone's come from academia And they they might say, yeah, I just spent 10 years there, but I didn't make it. You know, this is the way they would frame it. But actually, the truth is the reason why they're leaving is because they have actually succeeded there for a long time. But they're fed up of having to fight to get projects because there's a diminishing number. And actually, what they really want is a more stable job. So they have been successful. It's just that they're now looking to do something else. And I always find the people, it's really quite a brave thing to do. You know, you've done this for 10 years, like, and to make a change, they're brave. So I would say this is missing. Mm-hmm. It's like encouraging people, yeah. not looking negative at past achievements. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. It's reframing it, actually. Mm-hmm. It's more than encouraging, I would say. And then the other thing, I think, is just helping people get clear about exactly what job they want to do. So this might sound strange because we're at a boot camp where it's very focused, but there's still lots of other things you've got to think about, you know, like, do you like working in a structured environment or unstructured, like risky, non-risky, competitive, collaborative? So this type of thing. So actually just helping people make sure that when they get the job, that they're as happy as they can be. How do you do that? How do you help people understand what they want? Like, let's say, I guess this is like whether they want to work in a corporate environment or a startup, right? What kind of startup it would be or what kind of corporation it would be. These kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this kind of things. I mean, you can ask through questioning. So I think you can just make people reflect on this, not only in a hypothetical way, but on what's happened in the past. And then also like a bit like I was describing, you can craft some experiments. So you can you can encourage people to try some things out in a sort of a safe way, first of all, to get clearer about what they want to do. Yeah, but I would say essentially what you're describing is describes mostly what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there is a comment from one of your former students that Anna is saying that she definitely agrees with uh, making people feel good about themselves is very important and you are definitely good at this. <laughs> I actually have a friend, he uh, was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Now he's a data scientist, he was a lawyer. And uh, I think I heard this, what you mentioned, being negative about previous experience as a lawyer and completely neglecting and saying, this experience is not worth anything. Let's not put it to my CV at all. Let's not mention that at all. Let's just pretend it never happened, right? And how do you help people to not do this? Let's say we have a lawyer mm-hmm. and this lawyer says that whatever they did in the last 10 years, Like it's worthless, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you convince them that it's not, not actually worthless, that it's actually good experience that is worth putting on CV? You just need to put emphasis in the right way. Yeah, the first thing is to have a very honest and open conversation about what they think they failed at. So you give space to let all of this come out, I think, and then to try to talk, encourage them to think about right, what were their successes. And some people really struggle to do this. I didn't achieve anything. So you can extract this. 
So this is the sort of warts and all exploration. And when you do this, things that people have said, oh, this is when I fail, they, they start to realize that, that really this wasn't an objective view. So this is the first thing. And then there's the second part, which is packaging it up, you know, and the two things are related, but distinct, I would say. So when it comes to packaging it up, I mean, the first thing I would ask would be like, first of all, have you worked with data? So this lawyer may or may not have. Probably, yes. Yeah. Like, I don't know how they do this because there are so many laws and then they need to locate the right one, right? Yes. This is data. Exactly. So this is the first thing is that, and just like you said, a lot of people have worked with data, but they somehow haven't recognized it. They say, oh, but it's not what I'm doing now. And it's like, no, it's not, but let's work out what you've done. So, so this would be the first thing to get them to put on their CV where they have worked with data. And then the second thing would be where they have demonstrated similar skills. So maybe for example, a data scientist, you know, so Maybe someone like an engineer, for example, might have built simulation models, and it's quite different in some respects, but there's similarities. So there's some sort of evidence that it would be similar to machine learning. So that would be the second thing you would do. Okay. And then the third thing would be these transferable competencies. So problem solving and analytical skills. You know, when have you done this? A lot of people have done this already. And here it's important to describe it in a way that's achievement-based. Like what people tend to do, they say, oh, yeah, I've got evidence of this. But then the way they describe it is sort of responsibility-based. And they use the language that makes sense from their previous domain or industry. And it's not always comprehensible to someone who's not in this. So I see this all the time. Everybody does this all the time because, of course, when you're writing it, you understand it, mm-hmm. but you, then you don't understand. You've forgotten what it's like to not be an expert in it. Yeah. So this responsibility is like finding, uh, I don't know what lawyers do. I uh, hope I don't uh, offend anyone, but like finding the right laws and things like this, right? But then this is not achievement. This is responsibility. This is what you were right. doing. But achievement would be like helping this customer get that, right? Yeah, I'm sure there will have been some very complex analytical thing that they've had to work out, but we don't need to know the detail of this and using law terminology that we don't understand. We just want to extract it up, you know, like, so they were chosen by their manager to manage this particular client or project. And during this, they demonstrated problem solving analytical skills. Mm -hmm. So you give evidence, but you also point out the obvious, you know. And so there would be other skills like fast learner. Like I'm sure as a lawyer, you have to learn fast. So again, you would show this. Communication would be another one. So there are many things that we take because we know this, even I'm sure in your job and my job, yeah, I do the things that you listed out, but I also do other things that are not related to my specific expertise. And yeah, we have to be rounded. So yeah, I think by the time we, you, we've spent maybe two or three sessions doing this, then it sort of, they are more comfortable and also they're able to have produced something which is convincing to someone that doesn't know mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Okay. So each student gets uh, two, three sessions with you right, to talk about uh, all these things. Well, actually, the way we do it is we have unlimited access. So... Of course, people don't come like a hundred times if everyone did this, then it wouldn't work. There's actually myself and my colleague, Olga. So there are two coaches now, Uh, but we actually work with people whenever they want, right up until they get their job. So it is unlimited and people don't overuse it. So that's why it works. (laughs) But typically on average, is it like two to three sessions? Is it more or is it less? Uh, I think the average maybe is four. Yeah. So do you see people who do not need your help at all? They just don't have any problems with finding a job. Are there people like that? There are some people. Yeah, there are some people who we wouldn't see at all. So sometimes there are people who get a job easily. Sometimes there are people who we don't see at all who maybe are the ones who need the most help. So there's also this category of people. Mm -hmm. So yeah. There are some students that would only see in a group, you know, so we also offer uh, group sessions uh, where we all come together. We offer five group sessions on various topics and then one-to-ones, and we might not see them in the one-to-one. And uh, how important is it, in your opinion, to have career coaches for boot camps? 
let's say what would happen if there was no career coaches in the bootcamp where you were working? Yeah, well, we did have this experience once because last year, actually, I had COVID. So I was out for a while, <laughs> longer than you would normally be with a kind of standard virus. Yeah, I think the impact would be that some people, I think, wouldn't attempt to make the move, you know, so they would maybe just return to their old jobs without really trying it. And I think this would be because they wouldn't believe they could actually do it. I think one thing the coaches do is we keep the history of what's happened to all the students. I mean, a lot of it we have in our head, and of course we have some data, but we're able to explain profiles of people and, and how and what sort of role they've got after the camp. And so, again, it's sort of like this evidence base where we can share this, and I think this helps with people's beliefs. Yeah, I think other people might find it difficult to navigate the market. So they might target the wrong job, first of all, or take longer, at least take longer to work out how to do it, or worst case, it might not work at all. Some for sure will have CVs that are good for the job they did before, but not good for data jobs. So the paperwork will be wrong and they might not get interviews. And I also think some people would fall out to interview because they're not quite sure how to explain their strengths or their weaknesses. So I think it would have an impact, but I also have the faith that people would find their own way, you know, somehow they would find their own way. But uh, yeah, I guess we do make a small contribution to that. Yeah, you mentioned a few problems. So first, people sometimes don't believe in themselves and they think, okay, I wouldn't get this job, so I will not try. I'll go back to whatever I was doing. Then you also say that another problem is their CV is not prepared for the job they need. So they probably do the CV in the old way while they need to change it slightly. Then also interviews, so maybe they are not prepared. So are there other problems people have? Yeah, I would think one other problem I see is that sometimes people know that they want to work with data, but they don't have a good understanding of what all the rules and possibilities are. So they don't really understand the marketplace. So we would do a session maybe to help them with this. You know, So for example, there isn't standard terminology yet, you know, so what some mm -hmm. person might call a data scientist, another person might call it analytics. So we have this textbook definition, but people don't get it. You know, this is confusing. I think when you come into a new sector, it can be confusing anyway, but this is something data has that it's still emerging or things like, for example, I was reading last year because of COVID, there was less budget available for data science. And so like a machine learning engineer role was getting merged into the data science role. And people therefore have to be able to write better code, which ends up in production, you know, code that can perform and be stable. And then this ultimately has an impact on the junior data scientist, maybe has to now be able to know more Python. So it's very difficult to navigate your way around this. Or there's also new roles coming up, actually. I think it's a data engineer that works in an analytics team, but you know this type of stuff, it's not so obvious. Mm -hmm. Or also you look at data science roles and it's got a data engineering skill set on it. You're like, well, what is this? And you know this is because some places they can't get the data engineers, so they're asking the data scientists to do it. It's very ambiguous. So this they have to understand. And then I think the second issue they say is, okay, now I get this, which is complex, but I don't know where do I fit in in this? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I make my first move into this data world? And so this is something that we would do on an individual basis, you know? So we maybe talk about the landscape in a group and then we might speak to someone and say, okay, what do you already bring? So some of the things we've touched on already, and it's quite difficult for people to do that. So we might say, okay, do you have linear algebra? And they're like, yeah, of course I have. It's like, okay, but you have to be explicit. Put this on your CV. You know, do you have calculus? Yes, also put this on your CV. Or maybe even like a small online course. So perhaps before the bootcamp, you've done something that's they think is trivial, but it's actually important because as a recruiter, if I look at someone's CV and I can see that they've been interested in data actually for the last two years and they've self-taught something or they've done a small course, then this starts to build up a picture. And then, yeah, we just then help them work out what their first move would be. Yeah, quite complex. And among these problems, what do you think is the most difficult one to help with? 
I mean, I think one problem that I didn't maybe mention yet, actually, which possibly is the most difficult, is that I think getting students orientated around the role is okay. You know, eventually they understand and they know what they want to do, and they also understand how to package themselves. One thing which I think people struggle with is when they're doing these boot camps is often people will say to me, I'll say, what job do you want? And they'll say, I want to be a data scientist. And they'll say, okay, but what else? Like what industry, what domain, any particular technology? And they say, I don't care. You know, I just want to be a data scientist. I love it. And somehow this flexibility and openness, you might think is the best strategy. You know, this is going to lead to like your more chances of getting a job, but it actually doesn't. It doesn't work too well because if I'm a recruiter, I don't say e-commerce place like Zalando or whatever, and I get in a CV and a cover letter from someone and I can sort of tell they just want to be a data scientist, you know, I'm going to get hundreds like this. But if I get one where they've said, OK, I understand the e-commerce market, you know, I understand your business. I want to build recommender systems because I know quite a lot of machine learning doesn't make it into production, but I know this will and I want to have an impact on the business and they have it very tailored and maybe they even have their final project as a recommender system, then I'm much more likely to interview them. But what can be difficult for people is if you genuinely don't have a focus, how do you get it? Yeah, I was going to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) So what we would do to try to help people is, well, first of all, it's okay to have a strategy, a mixed strategy. So you can send out some stuff genetically. This is fine. But the thing that works well is if you try to at least find some interest areas so we actually use a model. It's called Ikigai. So it's Japanese. So Iki is means life and Gai means worth doing. So this is a model that helps you, you know, find your ultimate job that you would love. And what it suggests is that you start with what the world needs. Okay. So of course the world needs lots of things, but what you'll do is if you're a data person is you can start to look at a very high level of the types of things that the world's asking for. So you start really reading a high level trend reports, you know? So I read one recently and it said, okay, in 2022, cybersecurity, this is probably going to be the most built machine learning model. Maybe this resonates with me or it doesn't, you know, or climate change or whatever. But what you'll find is that you will naturally be drawn to some topics that are of interest to you at a very high level. So this is a good place to start. And then when you have a few of those that are interesting to you, then you can drill down a little bit. So you say, okay, climate change. So what user cases are there in machine learning where it's actually been applied? And you get curious about this, you know, so then maybe you do your final project in it. And you end up writing a better tailored CV cover letter. And when you go to interview, you have some things to say. So, yeah, there's more to it than this. But just to give you a flavor, this is some way you might start to get some sort of focus. Yeah. So having focus is a good thing. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember also, I guess I was lucky when I was uh, switching (laughs) because I didn't have a focus. I would just work anywhere. Just hire me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but what's interesting is when people people do say this when they're going off the boot camp, but when you catch up with them 18 months later, they say, oh, yeah, I didn't like it because X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. so it's not really true. You know, it feels like this in the moment. And there's this advice, of course, that you shouldn't be too picky, which is also true. But within this huge landscape of stuff that you could do, at least try to look for the thing that might work best for you. Yeah, and uh, since... I guess most of the graduates are looking for a job in Berlin. There are many companies to choose from, right? So you can have this focus. It's not like there are just two companies that hire data scientists, right? No, I mean, I was before I spoke to the students last week, I had a look and I was looking at the number of junior roles on LinkedIn. I do this periodically. And I actually, I did it when I first started. And the jump in number was huge. I mean, I think for data analyst junior positions, it was over 800. And when I started, it was 60. So I started two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Data scientist was a bit less, 550, I think. And so this was, and data engineering was less than data analytics. First time I've seen this, that actually there was more analytics jobs than engineering. And yeah, Berlin, but we also have campuses in other parts of Germany. Yeah, so in uh, 2020, when COVID hit, 
companies started to reduce their budget. They stopped hiring juniors, right? So now it's back to before COVID even numbers are higher, right? Right now, right? For junior people. Yeah, they're higher. And I think this is it. There's a backlog. And also my sense is that, of course, there's been a lot of digitization. So there's a lot of analytics jobs. And this is why I think the order of magnitude is even higher mm-hmm. for analytics, you know. And it's also more necessary. It's maybe got a more immediate impact sometimes on businesses. I think like sometimes a lot of companies, I think, are still playing with machine learning. So, yeah, but analytics is needed by a lot of places now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data that we've generated like we're doing now. <laughs> a lot of online stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming back to focus, to having focus when looking for a job. How much research do you think people should put in learning about companies before they apply? Should they just spray and pray, just apply everywhere, or they should do a bit of research and then select first a niche and then select a few companies then learn as much as possible about them and then apply? Yeah, I think there's no right answer and it depends on your situation. So if you have a background that allows you to spray and pray, as you say, it can work. You know, So for example, say you've worked in consultancy and you want to go back into consultancy and you're going to take your new data skills with you, then you could probably do quite a generic campaign. You know, So maybe you don't even bother with a cover letter. You just like tailor your profile and you just throw it out there. If you've done something completely different and it's going to be a leap, then you have to make more effort, I would say. And you can have a mixture. So I don't think it's an either or. You can have a mixture. So you can have some tailored stuff and some genetic things. So balance. Yeah, there's no right one answer. It depends on your situation. But generally, I would say if you just sit down at LinkedIn and you do genetic cover letters, genetic CVs, and just start applying willy-nilly, it's going to take you longer. This is what I see. The job search usually is longer. Okay, so better to have some focus, I guess, as you said, to have some balance. So pick a few companies, do research, apply to them, tailor your CV, cover letter to these companies. And then in the meantime, also spray and pray, right? Mm-hmm. And I okay. would add what you said is that if those companies can belong to some sort of industry or domain or even mm-hmm. technology focus, then that's even better because then you can really do some research at this high level as well. And you can be quite knowledgeable mm-hmm. and hopefully get something that you're interested in, you know, because when you get in there, you might not want to be right, be creating recommender models for people to buy more dresses. You know, maybe you want to do something else. So it makes a difference, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a question from Amin. So does uh, uh, the Spice Academy provide career coaching without the bootcamp or you have to go to the bootcamp to get career coaching? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. No, we don't. <laughs> but it's an interesting idea. But currently it's it's not a separate service in its own right now. Okay, and uh, do you have any advice for people? Say somebody wants to find a career coach. So, for example, there is a question from Michael. So he's a self-taught student. Do you have any suggestions for him to find a career coach? Should he actually do that? Should he find a career coach? And uh, if yes, how would you recommend finding one? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I were him, I would probably go to LinkedIn and I would do a search there. And then I would look at the qualifications, like have they actually done a qualification as a career coach? Um, how many years experience do they have? And also maybe they quite often career coaches would have recommendations from the people. And then um, you could connect to them and actually talk to these people and see what it was like. I think also coaches are willing to do like a quick 15-20 minutes you know just chatting because you do you need to have some other than just the skills you need to have some sort of connection Mm -hmm. I think the other thing I would do is choose one that was in the city I wanted to work in probably and maybe the sector as well I mean a lot of some of it is genetic but if you're working with a career coach who doesn't know anything about data then it's going to be much trickier to get something to so you want to have a career coach that specializes in data, ideally data science, and in the city or at least region where you want to find your job. Yeah, I think that really helps, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there is a quite a big topic that I also wanted to talk about. 
when people don't believe in themselves, as we talked about, this is one of the reasons that people decide not to look for a job, is they just don't believe they are good at this and they would find anything, which is a thing called imposter syndrome. And I think everyone has it. Every month I have these thoughts of, okay, am I good enough? Or what am, am I doing is good enough for the company or not good? And then I have to convince myself that it's actually good, try to get external data, right? So I think everyone has this. Mm-hmm. And does this problem come up a lot in your coaching sessions? Yeah, for sure. It comes up a lot and I think it is a big topic. And I agree with you that we can all suffer from it. So what can we do about it? I think it's also interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think to sort of answer that question, it's good to sort of understand, like, how does it come about that we feel like this? So, yeah, the way I might try to encourage us to think about it is, first of all, imagine for a minute, like, you've decided to maybe not go to a boot camp, but pretend that you've been at a boot camp, okay? So you take your CV and you invent it. So you say, okay, I've done a three-month data science boot camp when you've not. And then maybe you put your CV in, you get invited to interview and you get someone to do the offsite coding challenge. That's a thought experiment or you actually suggest doing this? (laughs) No, this is just a thought experiment to get us about it because it's quite a strange thing we do. Like you've said like, you Mm -hmm. know, you're a senior data scientist and you're doing this every month, you know? So like, how do we get to this point? If not often. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then... Imagine this person's got someone to do this offsite coding challenge. Okay. So, how far are they going to get with this? Right. So, I would imagine there's a good chance they're going to get found out at technical interview stage. But let's imagine they don't. For some reason, they don't and they make it and they're in the job. And how long are they going to survive there? You know, in this team with senior data scientists, data engineers, product managers, like we can't really imagine they're going to make it to the Friday. Okay. So, what's happening there? This Like if you are a fraud, if you're surrounded by people who basically know the topic well, you're not going to survive, okay? So isn't it quite odd when you think about it, therefore, that we are, a lot of us, spending time in situations where we've maybe been happily employed by for years in a company and received really good feedback, and we're still feeling these feelings of like an imposter. So what's going on there? So really the only way to understand this is that those people that are surrounding us have some objective view about us. And that's different. Like they're, I mean, of course, their view of us is still subjective, but if we say it's a number of people and take the point of view that it's an objective view of us, then it means that our view of ourselves, our subjective view of ourselves is distorted in some way. You know, the only explanation is it's about perception of ourselves. Maybe because they know about me much more than others. Yeah, but this is the thing. Okay, so so then we think, how can this be? So I know myself, but just like you say, I know myself better than everyone else. Like this is real. I feel it. It's very painful. We've all felt it, and it feels very true. And yet we can't really be a fraud because we wouldn't survive. I mean, it's kind of paradoxical, but to feel these feelings, you actually have to be successful. You know, you actually have to have got into a position where you're being employed or you've got the job to feel them. So. To understand, like, how do we end up with a self-view that's somehow distorted? Like, you really need to think about how do we form our identity? It's not something we think about very often, right? But how do we actually form this self-view? Like, you say you know yourself, but do you? (laughs) I would ask (laughs) you. (laughs) So the way we develop this is, first of all, in our families. You know, this is our first experience of life. And they give us uh, labels, sometimes very overtly, sometimes subtly and unconsciously but they tell us things about ourselves and we internalize these and we very much believe them you know we're we've got no other choice and then we get older and we join new networks so we go to school for example you know so say I, I come from a family environment where I've kind of decided somehow I'm not good enough in some way and then I go to school and the teacher tells me I'm sort of outstanding and I get really good marks. So here I am with sort of lots of evidence. So what do I do with these two conflicting things? You know, so at this young age, what we tend to do is we give more weighting to what we've been told in our family, but we have this conflict. Like, what are we going to do with this advice that's coming from this external source? And what we tend to do is we find a way to dismiss it. So we say, oh, well, I only got good results because I studied very hard or I was lucky. I actually understood what would be coming up on the exam. 
and we dismiss it. So the positive stuff gets dismissed. We have this belief that somehow we're not good enough and we carry this pattern on. We then go into the workplace and as soon as we receive some negative feedback, wow, this gets our attention. We believe this and we tend to ignore the positive stuff. So yeah, there's a sort of name for this confirmation bias. You know, you look like what we look for, we find. (laughs) So then we can start to see how we would be doing this. Okay. So I think the first step in solving this is to actually recognize that you have it. Like you've said that you can kind of recognize that it's not true in some way. But often if you do feel like an imposter, you don't walk around saying, oh yeah, I've got imposter syndrome. You're saying to yourself, I'm actually not good enough and I'm keeping this quiet. I'm not telling anyone. Yeah, I don't want to tell it to my manager. <laughs> no, no, exactly. That's not something he, yeah, exactly. he needs to hear. Well, it's very hidden. So the next step is to think, okay, so what is the trigger? What is the thing that happens before we get to those thoughts? And so at work, we're often given a task, okay? And then our tasks are challenging. You know, we're in workplaces where we're asked to do stuff that we don't always know how to do. So maybe we do this task and 80% of it we do well, but the other 20 doesn't go so well. So when we have this, you're basically like a fork road. You've got two roads you can go down. So one road would be to focus on the bit that went wrong. Oh my goodness, how can I have done this? How can I have missed this? Thank goodness my boss wasn't there because otherwise I would be out of my ear. Okay, so we're very quickly got to feeling like an imposter. This will cause us to have certain usually bad coping strategies. So we'll become stressed, maybe overwhelmed, can lead to different behaviors depending on your particular situation. But maybe you become a perfectionist, you overwork, you try to polish things. So you're in this sort of space. Okay. Another way would be the other fork in the road would be where we would say, okay, well, actually, we'll spend some time looking at what went well. We will also look at what didn't go well, but from this point of view of saying, right, what could I learn from this? First of all, you do have to process it. It's still uncomfortable. No one likes to fail or mess up, but we kind of process it and think, what can I learn? What can I do differently? What are my skills gaps? And this leads us down the road of acceptance, of failure, and the fact that we can make mistakes and go on to be better. So even though we can explain this, that we have this choice of these two different roads, this happens in the blink of an eye now. You know, the situation happens and we're already there. So really what we're saying is that we need to take time to look at our self-beliefs, how that affects our thinking and ultimately our behavior. Because it is a sort of self-fulfilling self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. So how can we do this? So yeah, there's three things I would suggest. Like you can get a book. So there are books there on imposter syndrome. There's one I have it here actually because I was uh, yeah something I have. I show you. It's from the 1960s. It's definitely got a 1960s look about it. It's by Dr. Pauline Clancy. This was the first person who coined this phrase, imposter syndrome. And in there, you'll find this and there's other books. You'll find exercises that would help you try to change some of this aspect about your What's the name of the book? Yeah, it's The Imposter Phenomenon, When Success Makes You Feel Like a Fake. It's a little bit dated now because when this was done in the 60s, she talks in here, for example, about the fact that more women than men suffer from it, which is not true. Although I think it was probably true then because society was giving women the beliefs that they couldn't work. So, but things now it's that the research shows it's, it's the same. It's not gender specific. Yeah. So there's some things in there I think that can help. Or the other thing you can do is work with a, a career coach if you find that you can't solve it on your own. Because this is the thing, you're trying to solve your self-perception and you're likely to stand in your own way, you know, so it can be useful to have someone to help you. If you don't want to work at that level, the third piece of advice I would give you is to find a mentor. So there's plenty of technical mentors out there that will help you for free, like Mentoring Club, for example, is one of the sites. And this person can help you. So maybe they're a senior data person. And when something is happening, you can share it and they can just lead you. They're more likely to lead you along the path of saying, okay, right, what do you need to learn? And as you were saying, like your question was also about like, does it happen often at the boot camp? And I would say yes. 
Yeah, because I'm curious. So, for example, for me, I know, so I've been in this industry for quite a while. I've worked as a data scientist for the last, I don't know, six, seven years for quite some time. So I learned how to live with this feeling. But I imagine for somebody who is just starting their career, they're not even started yet. They, they want to switch. So they enrolled in the bootcamp. And now they think, okay, all this my experience as a lawyer is worthless, right? And then now I look at this list of things I need to know to apply for the job. And then I can see how that can lead to this feeling that, okay, I'm not good enough. Let me go back to being a lawyer. Yes, you're right. So what do they do? Yeah, what do you do? So I would say when we're changing careers, this is a particularly fragile time for imposter syndrome. As you said, even more in the workplace, it can be challenging. And part of the reason for this is, is that, of course, we're in something new and our skills are emerging. So another thing that affects our identity is the things that we repeatedly do every day, we internalize, you know, we develop skills and achievements and we internalize these and these form part of our identity. So if I do maths calculations for, for the last two years, then I can say, yeah, I'm good at maths. But of course, when we're moving into something new, like we've done Python for three months, we're not going to feel confident in it. So I think there's an acceptance that this is the case. And I think the thing is, it's the same thing about these forks. So we can decide, okay, when I apply for a job, this means I'm an imposter and actually I won't bother. Or we can say it's emerging. I've actually found something I enjoy. And this is a really important thing because I meet people who don't ever find this. So if you found something you, you enjoy and you can see that you could get good at it, then this is enough. So you're on the second path of thinking, okay, I'm developing it. And I think this is the second challenge about moving into a career in tech. Other sectors are like this, but tech particularly, and data science even more specifically, is that there's so much to learn, first of all. And secondly, it's, there's not an obvious structural path. You know, if I think, I told you my dad was an engineer, if I think of his career path, so he spent four years learning it, was really structured, then he did an apprenticeship, then he spent 20 years and it was very structured. So I think one thing that can really help when you come off a boot camp is to say, okay, when I finished, what are my gaps between where I am now and what do I need to get the first junior role? And you can find this out by asking people who've already done it, you know? So I would go to like LinkedIn and I would find a lawyer who then become a data scientist and I would connect and say, right, tell me, how did you do it? Or so you can create your learning path from where you are to where you need to get to. And I think the other thing is once you get in a job as well, to then expand this, you know. So I would find someone within the firm and say, right, I want to have a high level picture, even if it's something that you're not going to learn for the next couple of years. But it will help you because say, for example, because this is the thing, like when you get the job, this helps, you know, you've got your first job. So you start to really believe it. Because also part of our identity is feedback from other people. You know, I cannot decide, for example, that I'm sporty if nobody else in the world agrees with me. So we also make our identity based on direct feedback we get from others. And say you're in a meeting the first few months and people are all talking about some technology and you have no clue what they're talking about, then this feeling is going to be really strong. But if you're able to say, okay, this technology, it's a data engineering technology. I can see it on my plan over here, my learning plan. And I'm going to get to it, then this helps. And I think the other thing that helps is to think about building your skills in terms of a T-shape. So the, the top bar is the width. So you know that there's a certain number of topics that you need to cover in your role and you won't be able to do them all in depth, but work out what is the depth going to be. Like, I think this is quite anchoring. If you have at least one topic and as you get more senior, there'll be more than one topic. It's something that you know really well. I think that helps. The other thing I think helps when you're coming off a boot camp and as you say, you're changing for the first time is on getting clear about what is the expectation of the role. Uh, because I find students, of course, they're not clear in this because we've just explained how muddy the marketplace is, but they tend to exaggerate it, you know? So they'll say, look, I've got no chance. And they'll show me, almost show me a job ad and they'll say, look, I need a PhD in statistics. <laughs> to be a data scientist. I was like, okay, so you're not going to do this role. 
But there's plenty of roles where you just need a linear regression. And if you don't know how to do this, then actually you can go and do some data analytics for a while, or maybe even be a business intelligence analyst and just do SQL for six months. So there's always a way. And I think, again, by connecting and talking to people, and no one will give you the same answer, actually, because there is no one answer, but you will start to see that what's expected of you at junior level is achievable. So working on your inside and understanding what the outside needs, you will you will get there. I mean, I see it happen every day, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah, we have quite a few questions. Yeah. The first question I see is about internships. So we have internships and we have junior positions. Yeah. So do you see your students applying for internships or this is only for students? And is it even advisable to do internships or they should aim at uh, permanent roles? Yeah, so this is a good question and it depends on the person. So yes, for sure, there are some students who do internships. First of all, the number of internships that's available compared to juniors is really small. So the ones that you'll find in LinkedIn, I don't know how many there are today, but they can be really a small number. And it depends on your situation, whether you need it, you know, like, so if you are a structural engineer, you have all the maths, you know, you already coded a bit, you're going to go for a data science position in structural engineering firm, then no, you can just probably go straight in. If you don't have, you're not bringing a lot of that with you, then yeah, why not? If you can do it financially, you know, it can be a good route in. Like I can think of one student who, especially, and it also depends on the role, like if you want to be a data engineer, it's difficult to walk into a junior data engineering role, but I've seen some students go and do a six-month internship and then they've got a junior role. This is quite a quick way to get it. So I think it depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. But for sure, I think it's a great route. Now, the other thing I'd want to just say on this is that, as I said, you won't necessarily find a lot advertised in LinkedIn, but you can generate them. Like through networking, I see a lot of students connecting And the person says, okay, they don't call it an internship, but they say, you come in my team for six months. If it works out, then I'll make a position for you. So you can also generate opportunities that maybe aren't aren't even there, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, with internships, it's tricky. Some of the internships we had, we closed them without going public, let's say, with them. Because usually it's uh, the moment we publish it, it's just too difficult to deal with the amount of applications. That's why we ask, hey, do you know anybody who is uh, you know, looking for an internship? And maybe we have uh, one position. So this is how I found an intern. Then I was looking for an intern. So it was through smaller communities, not advertising this publicly on LinkedIn. So this is uh, a good suggestion to connect to people to find this. Another question we have, what advice would you give for working with recruiters? Yeah, so... Depends what level you are. So if you're looking for a junior, they won't have junior positions, but they still might be willing to speak to you because once you get into data, you've kind of got a job for life. So at some point, you know, you might become their client. And if you are more senior, I would say find a good one and stick with them. That's what people do. (laughs) How do you find a good one? I mean, word of mouth, but also... Yeah, you find maybe someone that's like boutique, specialized in data. You know, they tend to do salary reports. I mean, yeah, there aren't so many, actually. There's a few in Germany and quite a lot of them are London-based. So, yeah, I have a list, I think, of about eight that I would maybe recommend. Maybe I can share it with you (laughs) if people want a list. I I know only one Germany-based. Most of them are from the UK. I don't know why it's the case, why the UK companies hire in Germany. But this is interesting and this is what we see usually so when i get a call from a a number that starts with 44 i know that it's a recruiter yeah that's interesting yeah i've seen that i mean how to handle them yeah i mean i think that's the main way to handle them is if you get a good one then they can be really helpful and if they're not then just there's no point actually having a conversation Mm -hmm. have you seen your students uh, succeed with a recruiter like were they helpful or maybe students shouldn't spend their time with a recruiter and apply directly to companies? Well, almost all of our students are going for junior roles and recruiters get paid a fee. So they're, mm-hmm. they're very few. I can think of a handful of people who've actually got a job through a recruiter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they get found on LinkedIn by recruiters. This can sometimes happen, but it's more, yeah, it's more the exception than the rule. 
So they don't routinely phone them up. But one thing you could do, if I were a student, I would phone them up and say, hey, I'm a junior, but like, tell me which companies are hiring for juniors right now? What, what's happening? Because they will share this with you because a lot of them think about the long term. I mean, some might not reply, might not respond. Uh, we do actually have someone who comes in from Orange Quarter and talks to our students. Thomas, he's particularly good and he's always happy. Orange Quarter is a name of the company. Name of the company, yeah, it's a UK company. Mm -hmm. And they've got a lot of information about salaries, what's happening right now, which sectors are recruiting. So I would take advantage more from this angle at the junior level than really they don't have junior roles. Yeah, thanks. Maybe the last question, because I see we're almost out of time. If you can answer this quickly, because this is maybe a more complex question than it looks like. So the question is about, can you give some tips for networking on LinkedIn? Okay, so quickly, if I try to do it quickly, I would say, send a note that's going to encourage the person to connect to you, okay? When you connect, then add this note, yeah. right? Okay. Add a note. So how can you add a good note? Choose someone who's got a similar background as you. So I'm Scottish, I'm a mechanical engineer, I want to be a data scientist. Choose someone from that profile. They're more likely to help you if they're similar to you. Mm -hmm. Make it like a little tiny mini cover letter. So make yourself credible and just ask an informational question. Something that you really want. Like, how did you make your career move? Start gentle. And then from this, you it'll develop into something. So reframe it. Make it about asking questions that you're trying to get the answers to. And don't feel like you're networking, but it'll happen naturally. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. Uh, we should be wrapping up. Uh, thanks a lot for sharing all this advice with us. Thanks everyone, uh, especially Michael, who needed to wake at 6 a.m. to watch this. <laughs> I hope it was worth your while. So yeah, thanks. Thank you so much, Alexei. It was good to see you. Likewise. Have a great rest of your, of your day. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.